0: Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. Thoughtful conversation about the news of the day, address the existential threats to America. Let me try to do it in a way that's not inflated, despite inflation. (laughs) Right. Today, we'll speak with Mark Bauerlein. He's a professor emeritus of English at Emory University. He's an editor at First Things, and he hosts a podcast twice a week. He's the author of five books. We'll discuss his latest book on the show today. It's called The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future. He's talking about the millennials. But first, three things uh, I'd like to get off my chest and talk with Claude. Any thoughts about what's going on? I don't care. Nationally, internationally,
1: domestically, economically, culturally. Whatever's on your mind? Yeah, you know, one thing I'm finding interesting, and I, and I was watching the news, you know, the last couple of you know weeks, something that had jumped out at me is that um, now the news, uh, you know, reports and and, and anchors and, and what they're writing, they're starting to classify things as mass shootings that they didn't classify as mass shootings before. Um, you know, before it would be, you know, if some you know crazy lunatic walks into you know a, a school or a shopping center a grocery store um you know a church and and uh you know kills multiple people in that place uh that would be considered a mass shooting now i've been seeing a lot of reports of oh there there were five mass shootings this weekend and all of them were neighborhood stuff or a fight broke out and three to four people were shot. Now I understand the definition of a mass shooting now, you know, is four or more, more, but these aren't that same type. And I'm just wondering, I wonder if there's any, and it could be me being skeptical, you know, I just wonder if there's anything to that. Yeah. This never was a thing before. There was never any report, you know, um, I'm trying to remember the, 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 the last one I saw yesterday. It was in some uh, neighborhood, uh, Philadelphia, you know, outside of, of a school or something somewhere, there was a fight that broke out. And three or four people were shot and they called it a mass shooting. And they should never identify that right. as a mass shooting. That was violence. Oh, the, so,
0: there you know. was South Street, in Philadelphia at night mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, a big crowd and then
1: gunshots. And it's very different from Uvalde, though. I see your point, right? Right, right, right. And, 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 <laughs> and these things that would and when these would happen before, they weren't called mass shootings. Now, think these types mm-hmm. of things are called mass shootings. You think uh, we'll see something coming out of the Congress? I think we will simply because, I mean, that's the temperature right now. I feel like they have to do something.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I think we will see something. Uh, I think it'll be maybe the most dramatic raising the age at which you can buy one of these rifles mm-hmm. from 18 to 21. If you raise the age uh, to 21, several of these incidents were committed by people who were 18 mm-hmm. or younger. Now, one of them is, uh, is it Adam Lanza out of uh, in connecticut but he stole the gun from his mother right so uh, that you know that's different and you know the legislation isn't going to take care of things like that mm-hmm. but i think something will happen maybe red flags maybe more background checks but you got to remember we already have laws on a lot of this that aren't being enforced so that needs to be borne in mind in some ways the larger picture is coming to dominate more it seems to me you're saying that there are these incidents and they're called mass shootings and i but um crime overall Mm -hmm. is emerging. I think it's a much bigger issue. I think the border will as well because of this uh, swell that's coming. 15, 20,000 people once this uh, Title 42 is uh, lifted. Inflation, of course, dominates the news. Uh, We're we're at $5 gas now almost nationally Mm -hmm. as we are speaking here. And in many places, it's more than that. One, just one thing that's bothering me because we keep seeing these politicians, mostly Democrats, latest was Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan saying, well, you know, I drove to D.C. from Michigan, and I my new electric vehicle hasn't passed all these gas stations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you. What it cost you to buy that vehicle. They really are, you know, they mean them when they say transition to uh, electricity, <laughs> uh, and they're going to force it. Not thinking about what our friend Mark Mills told us, that all these things that are required, for electric cars will re-
1: require lots of uh, lots of fossil fuel. And when you talk about Americans, I mean, how many people he, this is something else he discussed, how many people are actually going to be able to afford electric cars? And so yeah, you're talking about many. leaving people behind an economic divide. There's not a lot of people right now who can afford electric cars.
0: No, you can't. And, yeah, exactly. uh, and that's just uh, inconsiderate. But they're going to force the issue. And, I, you know, I was just listening to several economists, Democrat and Republican, saying inflation, as far as the eye can see, and economic woe, woe, mm-hmm. and worry as far as the eye can see. You know, they, they, they put out a statement saying, welcome to people in the Congress who have plans. Well, open the pipeline, you know, open the XL pipeline and, you know, drill liquid natural gas. It's so odd to me that, you know, here we are uh, reluctant to drill in our own country and yet ready to, what, buy dirty oil from Venezuela? Mm. Dictator at dirty oil. And then, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, KSM uh, in Saudi Arabia, which Biden called a pariah state. Now he's going to go, you know head down to to Saudi Arabia and ask them to increase drilling, increase production. What indignities these are, indignities. Why not just drill right here in America where we have self-sufficiency if we just get at it? Go ahead, Claude. Well,
1: and then we also also saw the geopolitical um, situation when it came to Russia invading Ukraine. A lot of it had to do with European countries you know, can we count on certain individuals simply because of the gas that we're getting from Russia? Now, if we do this, um, you create that in other parts of the world. Why would we recreate that uh, with this? Yeah. By the way, back to crime, I meant to say, as we
0: are speaking, the uh, results of this uh, recall petition in uh, San Francisco, they have uh, recalled uh, uh, this uh, Chesa Boudin, Mm. this very liberal district attorney, very liberal. He's been recalled. He's been pushed out of office in san francisco by voters in san francisco Mm -hmm. so those three conservative voters in san francisco that tells you something Mm -hmm. that an ultra liberal place like that is recalling you know this liberal very liberal district attorney right i I was watching i don't know if you saw it uh, endless you know on tv this this car driven by this young person who, um, this was in L.A., who swerved to hit a mother and her child. Have you seen that? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he got caught and sentenced to camp, some kind of boot camp, but not much more than a slap on the wrist. The mother was on TV, uh, and it's a horrible thing to watch. You know, a baby in a baby carriage, and a mom in the car is just going right at him. just looks like it's intentionally doing it, like that situation in Wisconsin. And she was on, and she said, well, you know, this is L.A. I'm a Democrat, and I voted for him, this George Gascon, to be in because I think we have too many people in prison. But I don't know now. Right. Well, I guess you don't know now. Mm-hmm. Well, this guy, you know, who should be in prison but tried to kill you and your baby. What does it take to be a wake-up call? Well, you got to have a car swerve at you and try to kill you and your baby. Let's hope that's not the case. That's not what it takes to... Uh, change people's view. So Boudin is out in San Francisco. We'll see what happens with Gascon in uh, LA. I heard one guy saying Beverly Hills has now become Gotham city. I, I doubt that very mm-hmm. seriously, but I do think there's a lot of crime. I've seen films of uh, the streets in uh, Beverly Hills, which I know from going to meetings out there about, it you know, with looters and so on. So it's pretty, pretty wild. It's Certainly it's broken down. We'll see. I want to talk about about education for a minute. We'll be talking about mostly higher ed and and high school with uh, our guest Mark Bauerlein, but um, little kids' school. Have you noticed that that the CRT critical race theory uh, is kind of uh, diminishing? Much more focus on the gender stuff. Yes. You know what gender do you want to be? And some of this stuff is make you scream, tear Mm -hmm. hair out. Mm -hmm. Very little kids. You know, four, five, six, seven, eight. What gender do you, would you like to be? What would you like to be today? I mean, this is just insane stuff. I am sorry. So you know, add this to critical race theory and other things. And I, I'll say here again, what I've said on TV, you're going to see an explosion of homeschooling, mm-hmm. people saying their kids to Christian schools, Catholic schools, and so on. Uh, you, you
1: homeschool, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You're getting, and, you're getting. I bet you're getting more of your friends asking you how's it work, right? Uh, not only just some of my friends asking how how it work. Friends and family members who at first didn't understand why we were doing it are now looking to turn towards it. Who were like, "Oh, well, why would you do that?" You know, you, you're, you're compromising the social uh, 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 dynamic that you know your son will grow up with. But now, these same people who were kind of against it are now like, "Hey, what curriculum are you guys using? How does it work?" Um, uh, uh, is it online? And, and all these other kind of questions. And, you know, and, and to further your point too, Dr. Bennett, when you talk about what some of these teachers are saying, teachers are taking it upon themselves. I mean, and, and what, it, what I mean by that is it, it would be ridiculous to have in first grade or second grade a gender class. Right. But the but the teachers aren't doing this in some sort of gender class that the kids are going to. They're doing this in math class and they're doing this in English class. You know, they do they do it in these classes. Where this is not the subject matter, you know, not that not that a second or third grader should have a gender class, but but they're not even in gender class. They're in a they're in science class and they're they're doing this because and and some of the teachers are really proud of it. They're going to social media and saying, you know, as a trans woman or as a member of the LGBT community, I told my students this morning about gender fluidity and they don't have to. It's like, why aren't you teaching science? You're a scientist. Why aren't you teaching math? Teaching, I agree, I agree with you,
0: except I don't think there's any course at all in gender. No, the, of, co- of course not. I'm math, just English, history, science, art, and music, stop with the gender stuff.
1: Hey, well, that's, that's that's my point. It's, that, it's like they're not even in a gender class, those don't even exist. They're doing it during a time that it's supposed to teach them something else. Oh, that's right.
0: That's right. No, you're absolutely right. I had a friend, uh, family member come by, uh, you know, by marriage. Friend, uh, he's a friend by marriage, relative by marriage, lives in Charlotte. They have their, do you notice they have their first trans cheerleader?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that, um, well, yeah, a guy who, who turns to a girl. And I saw this on social media, yeah. Is was- he a black black guy? Yeah, uh-huh, Yeah, Black guy, uh,
0: or now black woman. I, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. So oh. he, mm-hmm. he, he want, I'm sorry, I get this whole damn thing confused. <laughs> I feel like, uh, who's that comedian?
1: Oh, Dave Chappelle.
0: <laughs> Dave Chappelle. <laughs> I, wait, what? You're going which way? Mm -hmm. okay so this uh guy wants to be a woman be a cheerleader and you know i I asked this guy who's a big carolina panther fan so what's gonna happen he said well you know i'm sure there'll be a few boos but i said a lot of people gonna be looking looking watching you know saying what the hell Mm -hmm. but curiosity will will, you know will will govern here there'll be a lot of that but i kidded him i said got charlotte beat san francisco here in terms of Bites. getting a tr- trans cheerleader? I mean, mm-hmm. beat, beat San Francisco, L.A., Seattle? Said, yeah, no, no, and we're not proud of it. But Charlotte was where they had the great bathroom debate, remember? And the uh, NBA pulled out and others pulled out. So I, uh, the world is changing, but I think uh, I'm pushing back on a lot of this stuff. Flannery O'Connor says, oh, you have to push as hard as the age that pushes against you. And This age is pushing against families the
1: traditional values very hard, uh, Claude, right? Right. And at one point it was it was about tolerance. It was about leaving people alone, let them do let them. But now it's moved to acceptance and not just tolerance. If you don't accept it, if you don't like it, if you think it's just not right, you can't disagree without being called all these names and without being, you know, labeled as a, a bigot and, you know, canceled at some point in, in time.
0: I'd like to ask you, uh, and I'd like to ask the audience to write us. How do they write us, Claude?
1: i oh, just send an email to bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com who, who's going to prevail here. 10 years ago, I would have said this more uh, confidently than I'm saying it now, but I still believe that those who are on the side of common sense will win out simply because I, I, I believe we haven't reached the point of just kind of, and, and some may disagree with this. I don't think we've reached the point of b- the blatant ridiculousness of it all that will cause people to back down. Like I think we're getting there, especially when it comes to transgender and sports, Um, right now with just, you know, Leah Thompson, the swimmer, that's not going to take us over the edge. What will take us over the edge is, um, you know, a, a trans athlete, maybe wanting to box, maybe wanting to wrestle, maybe UFC, or maybe a trans athlete who wants to play in the NFL, but not good enough, but cause that discrimination. It's like, well, you can't play in the league. You're not good enough to make a team. And so I think once we get to the, the this just blatant, uh, ridiculous nature uh, of it, I think that's where, where we'll start to see a turnaround because there will be people who will now be brave enough to say, well, you can't cancel me because I don't want to see a trans woman get in the ring uh, with another, with a, with a biological, with a, with a woman, with an actual woman. We don't want to see that. We don't want to see a man get into a box. And so I think that once we get to that place, that's where we'll start to see things turn around. And I think I that once we, once we see, once we get to that level, that point, I think, I think we'll get to a point where we can undo almost all these things that they, that they've done.
0: Oh, it's interesting. That's a great point. You think when you get to, can I say this, if I heard you right, when you get to contact sports. Sure. Yep. Yep. yep so yep. if you have a boxing match with uh, who's the young Ali girl, you know, Muhammad's. Uh, yeah, Layla
1: Ali. Uh-huh.
0: Layla Ali going against, you know, Floyd Merriweather. I mean, yeah. that just, you know, it just ain't. You know, it just ain't going to work.
1: No, and we're not We're not going to see that. We're not going to want to see it. You know, at some point, there's going to be. You might see
0: a female uh, a female wants to become a, a man do, a, doing the a place kicking. Right. But, she, but she's not going to be an offensive
1: lineman. No, 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 no. It's not going to work. So you work. think
0: that's the breaking point? And at that point, it stops and goes, trickles backwards so that Leo, what's her name,
1: the swimmer? Thomas. Name?
0: Yeah. yeah I Thompson. mean, I, there's a, just a lot of distress about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, now, uh, apparently, uh, he's going to try to make the Olympics team. Well, there you go. And I think we'll see a bigger outrage there than we did even with the collegiate level swimming, because now you're taking a spot from a young lady in the country who is a young lady and deserves to be on the Olympic team.
0: Well... For years, the, when the Olympics—I mean, I'm not an expert on this—but I, I remember for years in the Olympics, we challenged the Soviets that you know some of their women were men, mm-hmm. their runners and other people. We said these aren't women; these are men, mm-hmm. and we were kind of outraged by it. And I think I think you know the you know, Olympic Committee established some rules. I, I, are the Olympic Committee rules stricter than the NCAA, maybe. Maybe I don't. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah. I don't know either. If somebody knows. Please let us know. Oh, uh-huh, that's all right. Well, that's interesting. I, yeah, I don't know who wins in the end. I think the traditionalists, the common sense people, as you call them, win. But it's a hell of a fight. Much more of a fight than than we thought. Anyway, I think there's going to be a shellacking of progressivism this fall. You know that'll that'll be part of the story. But we'll uh, you know we'll see. Mm-hmm. And how much of that defeat is inflation? I guess a lot of it. But I think these cultural issues are big, too. I'm going to talk to Republican governors in July. Tell them that they got to seize education as an issue mm-hmm. for the first
1: time, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. 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 Yeah, they, yeah, they do. Yeah. So have you ever browsed in incognito mode? It's probably not as incognito as you think. And why would it be? Incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product. And Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against a company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. That's right. Google's defense, incognito does not mean invisible. So how can you really trust incognito mode? So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use Express VPN like I do. Turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on, your phone, your laptop, or even your smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, Secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash Bennett and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Bennett. Go to expressvpn.com slash Bennett to learn more. Well, let's welcome Mark Bauerlein to the
0: show. He's a professor emeritus of English at Emory University. He's an editor at First Things, where he hosts a podcast twice a week. And he's the author of five books. All right, well, this is very interesting. Uh, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. This is a follow-up to your earlier book about uh, the millennials. And it is about the millennials, right? Yes, sir. And who are they? Who are the millennials? Let's just get some basic facts here.
2: Born from the early 80s to
0: up to, say, 2000. Okay, so they're 25 to 40 years old, approximately. Sure, yes. Okay, what's, what's wrong with them? Or what's your beef with them?
2: Well, it really is a comparative thing. You know, remember back in 2006-07, uh, there was all this cheerleading going on for the, the web, Web 2.0, Facebook and Google and texting and all the new video games. There were actually people saying that this is gonna make the millennials the smartest, most informed, and most tolerant generation in human history. We even gave them the name, this this epochal name, millennials. And they were profiled as these amazing characters who were really going to lead America into the 21st century. And above it all, they elected Barack Obama. They were a big, the the youth vote was a uh, a big factor in Obama's victory, and especially those youth who were so adept with these new tools. And a few of us came out and said, no, 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 this is a very bad thing. It is not good for 15-year-olds to walk around with 250 photos of themselves in their pockets. (laughs) It's not good for them to send 4,000 text messages a month, to be online all the time in their bedrooms at midnight talking with one another, and that this is a very poor formation for responsible citizenship in a pluralistic republic. And a lot of people just said, oh, listen to these get off my lawn types. But now we're 15 years later, and how are the millennials doing? Well, life hasn't turned out to be the glorious thing that they thought it would be. Uh, you know, the, the, the rates of anxiety and depression are up. Mm-hmm. They have a sour attitude. They don't much like their country. They don't go to church. They don't pray. They don't have any transcendent orientation. But the humanities professors, teachers, they didn't give them a good grounding in anything else. Yeah. They didn't give them great traditions. I mean, I, I would i would come back to something you did. I, I, I've been following you for decades, Dr. Bennett. I remember Bill. being a graduate student at UCLA in the mid-80s and hearing your name come up among the professor's discussion, it was because of that report you did that to reclaim a legacy. Oh yeah. Well, was that the first serious, substantive challenge to what the humanities professors were doing? Because what I remember is their incredulity that someone would be raising questions about the great things that they were doing. Well, was that the first serious statement against the drift? Well, it was my statement,
0: Mark, and I worked very hard on it. I was chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Yep. And in college, I was a double major, philosophy and English, um, and felt very strongly about the obliteration, the hollowing out of the humanities. I always thought that, I mean, when I went to college, I was confronted with the dialogues of Plato, which shook me to my bones and stayed up late at night trying to think of arguments against Socrates. Same thing with Shakespeare. A great course in Shakespeare, a great course in modern drama, and never forget the professor saying, "All right, we're going to read King Lear. I want everyone to get a lot of rest. Don't eat too much. Don't drink. This is going to be a very, very strong experience." And that was missing in a lot of what I saw coming across my desk.
2: Where were you as an undergraduate? Williams College. Very good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was good then, but now I, you know, oh. I don't think so.
2: No, no. I mean, Williams has gone a little, a little nutty. Uh, now very nutty, as we know. But you're right. This is what college is supposed to be. And high school as well in your humanities classes. This is an encounter with civilization in its highest expression. And that it's 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 the antidote, as Leo, Leo Strauss put it, it's the antidote to, to mass culture that was pouring into the millennials' lives like never before because of these tools that could keep them connected 24 seven. And that made it even more the responsibility of the professors to give them the great stories of love and loss and betrayal of, of Dido and Aeneas or of commitment, you know, Odysseus and, uh, and, and Penelope or, or the Shakespeare lines, or their Gatsby give them these great figures, yeah. the great myths. You know they're they're also doggone narcissistic. Give them the story of Narcissus, uh, in in Ovid, and that this would give them again the materials, the equipment to handle the ordinary disappointments of adulthood. They didn't get that because the professors we, we know. Well, let's kill the Western Civ requirements now. Nah, yeah. let, let let's make. Uh, uh, skills and, and diversity are, are are grounding. We want to build certain liberal dispositions in the kids, but we don't want to give them knowledge. We don't even want to give them knowledge of Karl Marx in in any no. detailed no. way. And so they hit adulthood, and what did they have? They had their Facebook feeds. You know, they they had they had their uh, uh, their Instagram accounts. This doesn't help you manage. That 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 girl you loved who dumped you, or you know you want to live in in you know Williamsburg Brooklyn, and you you find that you know taxes are high and rent is is tough. This wasn't what life was supposed to be. When I was in my bedroom at age fifteen, I could create this wonderful universe of my own. I had all I shut the door. I had all the screens open. I had my Facebook and 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 my texting and everything and if someone on my textbook on my facebook feed said something like hey everyone vote vote for mitt romney you had a very ready answer unfriend you just you just remove that person. Yeah. someone yeah. texts something you don't like you block that person so you could create an all affirming universe so right. you you could cancel people the millennials who lead the way on cancel culture today They were canceling people when they were 16. This is simply the ordinary way of managing your life. And in some sense, the cancel culture we see today is them transferring the norms of their 15-year-old bedroom onto the campus, the public square, and and the workplace. And we didn't give them George Orwell. We didn't give them what the French Revolution turned into. We didn't let them see what utopian passions end With And there's nothing more ruthless, right, than a disappointed utopian, because they think they believe, why hasn't the great society materialized? Because we still have some bad people out there. And if we just get rid of the bad people, we will get the good society that we all deserve. Let's go
0: back. I want to. I, I want to dig into this indictment and some of the wonderful, uh, really memorable things you say, which I've underlined in the book uh, in a few minutes over the next few minutes. But is, is this indictment too large? Whole generation? Who was it who said was it Burke who said it's tough to draw up a you know indictment against the whole country? I, I, look, I have two millennial sons that are doing pretty well. Sure. Uh, one of them went to Princeton. That experience was mixed. You know, it wasn't what it should have been, but it was it was it was it was pretty good on the grounds that that you're talking about. But then he joined the Marine Corps, and we met hundreds of millennials who are United States Marines. Now, I know this is that's a fraction of of the one percent who serve. But is your indictment too large? I mean, what about those guys, and what about the the people in you know, Christian colleges. What are people in the University of Dallas, Grove City, which I've visited a couple times and really like? Um, that's that's A and B. I agree with you about a large number of the millennials, but a large a large part of them, you know, when they when they graduate, don't they change their views given the real world, looking at their paychecks, seeing taxes, or are they changing the world to their measure?
2: That second question is a, is a critical one. The first question, sure, I, I overgeneralize. It's it's a polemic and it's a provocation. So when I okay. did the first book, The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30, that was quite clearly an insult to uh, 85 million Americans. Uh, right <laughs> off and you know, I got I got tons of emails and, and letters and and angry uh, statements, you know, a lot of four-letter words in there. And you know, I had a USA Today reporter. She's 24 years old, and she says, "Do you really think you can't trust anyone under 30?" And I said, "Young lady, it's, it's a joke." There was this slogan back in the 60s, Blah blah blah. Yeah, sure. Anyway, the uh, the the emails that I would get, I would respond to every single one. If you're gonna if you're gonna throw something out like that, you got to stand up and take the heat. One of the things I admired about you, I'll, I'll come back. You, you would go to college campuses and 95% of the room would be against you. And you stood up, you held your ground, and you spoke your piece in uh, intellectual, firm terms, and often with a smile. And if you do that, what I found was I would respond to the, the, the kids, and they were surprised actually, that I took the time to talk substance with them. I just ignored the insults. And they came back with a completely different attitude toward me. And there were times when I would say, you know, you got me on that point. I I overplayed that that statistic. You, You win that one. That was the best response. I love being proved wrong by a youngster because they are showing they care and they're learning the ways of... Disquisition. So the provocation side is part of the point there with the with the overgeneralization. Now I think your your second question is really critical today. Are the millennials younger Americans, they have very big numbers, and they've got a lot of strength in terms of those numbers when they go into workplaces, when they engage in cancel culture. They can be very strong. I mean, they've got college leaders all across the country completely intimidated. Yeah, that's for sure. People are scared. My liberal colleague professors are nervous about, you know, I, I assigned Huck Finn for 20 years. Yeah. Now I must be very careful about the books I assign now, because remember, if you have a class of 35 people, And in your teaching evaluations at the end of the term, 33 people said, yeah, he's really good. You know, I I learned a lot. And two of them say, I felt very uncomfortable with his course assignments. He assigned Frederick Douglass's narrative, which has the N word in it. And he gave us no trigger warnings. I felt the entire discussion really was an aggression against the administration will take those two quite seriously. If they file a complaint, those two can make that professor's life hell for for months because those two will get others on campus. to Okay. okay. Anyway, so I I think that it doesn't take very many in this climate today. A small group of people can overturn all of our good liberal norms, uh, small L liberal norms of free speech and 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 conscience, rights, and pluralistic opinion. Well, let me just say, and I'm hyperbolic here, the hell with the academy. I mean, the hell with them.
0: They kill the humanities, the hell with them. I mean, there's a pretty good case for saving that money and not going to college. Yeah. I can can recommend this. People write me all the time, why should my kid go to college? And once I've exhausted three or four places, some of which I've already mentioned, say, you know, consider the option of not going. But my question is broader. The argument was once they get out, they'll be shaped by the real world, but isn't their influence greater than the university? They're not just intimidating presidents, they're intimidating the Bank of America. They are Major League Baseball and Coca-Cola. I mean look at look at you know, the boycotts they are and, and things. Is this the work of the millennials?
2: Well, I think that millennials give big numbers to uh, identity politicians who now populate uh, human resources in corporate America. All of these uh, organizations like Major League Baseball, all the sports organizations, and certainly the Democratic Party are, are filled with the identity politics activists now, and the millennials give them numbers. Suddenly with the, with the internet now, you can mobilize 100,000 people to write emails against, against something. And they, they can flood these, uh, these offices Uh, There was a case several years ago where uh, a woman who worked in a diocese in New Jersey, Catholic diocese, uh, after I think it was after the Obergefell decision, she simply wrote on Facebook, here is what Catholic doctrine is on marriage, period. Well, uh, she worked for us in the diocese and she was part of the school staff in in one of the high schools. And uh, one of the uh, alumnus turned out of that school turned out to be gay, got a hold of this. And he was distantly uh, related to uh, a Hollywood actress who actually ended up mobilizing about 50,000 people to flood the bishop's office with emails and phone calls. And they freaked out. This had never happened before. They didn't know what to do uh, about it. It was Susan Sarandon. By the way, Uh you may have heard heard about this case. I think Robbie George actually was involved in in advising her, but the diocese at first just wanted to wanted to fire her because it was just over. They were overwhelmed. They never had anyone pay attention to them like this before. So this is the way the cancel culture uh, operates. Millennials serve foot soldiers for the the hardcore people at Human Rights Campaign and 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 elsewhere. So I think they are changing workplaces, and they've, they've been infiltrating organizations for a long, long time. I wasn't surprised at all the stuff that's come out about Disney. I wasn't surprised no, by that no, at
0: no, all. No, no.
2: They've been sexualizing kids since the 80s at their shows where they started dressing up 12-year-olds uh, as, as if they were, you know, 19-year-olds out on the town.
0: Well, they go too far. I mean, I, you know, the last couple of days I've been watching this uh group of uh, I guess they're trans people with these very young children amazing uh, you know uh, <laughs> these horrible statements written on the wall and parents are bringing their little kids their four five six-year-olds to introduce them to you know gender the option of gender selection uh, yeah. isn't this isn't this the sort of gender equivalent of Loudon County parents just aren't gonna stand for this are they and I don't just mean conservatives I mean moderates and even liberals. As we're speaking, Mark, you know, I know it's relevance, but uh, they they just threw out the D.A. in San Francisco. That's right. The the liberal liberal D.A. How that happened, I guess the three conservative voters in the San Francisco area organized very well that they got they got other people. So so I, 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 you know, well, one of my questions is I know they have influence,
2: but you know, are they are they winning? Are they going to win? Well, we always have to look at the left in America as playing a long game. Very good at organizing. Lenin was a master tactician and they took they took good lessons from from him and from Gramsci. And so my moderate liberal friends always say, oh, yeah, they've gone too far. the pendulum is swinging back. Of course, yeah. what happens? The pendulum never swings back to where it really was. Right. Right, it's always right. moved a, a little bit to the left, and the way I look at things like the, the 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 trans stuff, the drag queen story stuff, they serve as shock troops. What are shock troops? They go in and they act horribly, so that when the regular uh-huh. occupying troops seem kind of moderate, but we've still got an invasion going on. Yeah, I
0: see. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah. so I I want to find that when we see the Soros district attorneys voted out twenty cities. Now we're making progress uh you know San Francisco could be just it's so bad in that city now that even even the moderate yeah. voters you you you've 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 got to go. This is about simply basic disorder on on the streets so yeah, i but you could, yeah, but let me interrupt you could also say.
0: San Francisco, my gosh, if you can vote out a, a very liberal guy there, you can vote it out anywhere. I mean, that's as liberal a voting block as you can find anywhere in America,
2: right? Yeah, I, I think actually the Asian vote uh, oh. have been a factor in, mm-hmm. say, the school board. Those three schools yeah, 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 were, yeah, were sure. ousted because the, the Asians, many of whom are just middle or lower middle class, they tend to send their kids to, to public schools. But yeah, they really, really care about academic achievement. They'll they'll vote otherwise Democrat. They tend to vote Democrat. Well that is shifting now. But I think the Asian vote in San Francisco was a big was a big part of this and it was very contained to the education issue. I'd love to see the breakdown yeah. of the vote on yeah. yesterday's ouster
0: yeah we well, get uh, touch education those asian parents i'll give you a quick little story when i was secretary i was invited by the orange county asian american parents to come and give an address uh, and uh they we're very excited secretary of education big deal i was excited to meet with them and then i got a notice they had to cancel because uh, there was a district-wide math test the next day <laughs> 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 the hell with the secretary man we got to stay home and drill our kids Good, now, good. those are the right, those are the right
2: priorities. Right. Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, what has always frustrated me is that the liberals I've known who uh, do care about these things and they, they saw things like the, the deterioration of the humanities and they would not draw a connection, though, between the destruction okay. of Humanitas and voting Democrat.
0: Let's get into that, uh, because um, I've always wondered about this question. I'm I'm quite sure that what you read and what you spend time with does change you. I I don't know quite how your friend, Bob, I think his name is, wrote you and said, it's in the book, uh, this is about human psychology. And you're giving, in the proper, I would say, study of the humanities, you're giving depth to, to students. You're asking them to take the place and point of view of another person. Good or bad, as you say in the book, and that gives depth somehow and gives perspective somehow so that you don't, you know, rush it, but rush at the shiniest coin that you see. Is it is it is it something like that?
2: I think that when we see uh, these uh, millennial protesters uh, chanting at a a visitor to campus like Jordan Peterson, yeah, transphobic you're transphobic this is just this is just a stereotype done of yeah. ignorance yeah i mean it's it's that that's the recourse of people who have a very shallow conception of human nature precisely because they've been often cardboard cutouts they've been offered cardboard cutouts of the opposition you know it's it's a, it's a form of demonization that only works if you haven't read a lot of novels because when you read novels, you got to get into the heads of the characters. You got to yeah. figure things out. You got to get into motive, and that means you got to get out of yourself a right. little bit and imagine another right. experience. And if you do that, you're not gonna you're not gonna say, "Oh, I don't, you're you're racist." I'm offended, and I was like, "Come on, this is this is this is a childish way of dealing right. with the world." It's time to grow up, but they
0: haven't. So this is a, it's a kind of I've been working on this for years. And I'm sure I got it. But I mean, it's kind of a way of leaving yourself. Uh, and so much of this generation is centered on self, including the selfie and everyone telling them how great they are. Yeah. But when you put yourself in the shoes of someone else, the place and point of view, uh, you, you forget yourself for a while, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yeah. And you can't wait to see how it turns out. Uh, I remember, you know, in, in, in in early in high school, I, you know, I locked the door of my room not to look at dirty pictures, but to, to, to finish Bram Stoker's Dracula, (laughs) which was actually a pretty good book, you know? And I was just, I just, I, I, I couldn't wait to see how it turned out and I was in a fit about it. And I was in a fit about other things, getting excited about reading them. And this, This is a a unique human capacity, isn't it, Mark? To put yourself in the place and point of view of another human being. Animals can't do that. They, you know, have thumbs or opposable thumbs or not. They can't do that. And human beings can.
2: And it's good for them to do that. Am I getting this close? It is very good. It's psychologically healthy to one of the things that draws you out of adolescence. I mean, adolescents are naturally self-absorbed. That's Mm -hmm. part of that stage of life. And one of the processes of maturity is to get out of your own head uh, a little bit. And it's something that you have to be led to do. It's not easy to do all by yourself. So what I would do in in college, one of the things when when, when I teach poetry classes, I would have my undergraduates uh, memorize poems and recite them to the class. And we know how progressive educators got rid of memorization because this stifles creativity and should let these kids write their own poems and and speak them instead of reciting other people's poems, which was a terrible thing to do to kids because of the value of memorization. And one of the values of doing it is you can't stand up in front of the class and recite, memorize and recite an Emily Dickinson poem unless you on some level become Emily Dickinson. Yeah. You, yeah. you you have you have to adopt it's like being an actor. You have to adopt a different personality. You have to get out of yourself a little bit and use someone else's words and they're not your words. You yeah. become that that poem. This is a very healthy thing for 17-year-olds to do and it's exactly the right uh opposition to you're you 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 are you are special you are wonderful and And you are right build your Facebook page all about me 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 and you know you you've got your phone and make sure your wallpaper is a picture of you so that every time you turn it on you are smiling right back at yourself
0: yes yeah but that but again the role of the of the mentor you you need to be let at Wordsworth says somewhere what we have loved others will love but we must teach them how or show them how i can remember mm-hmm. uh, right i mean we we have to i mean they they come in at 15 or 16 or 17 alan bloom says you know when they came to the university of chicago they didn't know anything <laughs> he said so you know they had to sort of start from scratch but my wife we, we, yesterday was quoting who is it barefoot boy with cheek of tans that John Whitcomb Riley? Yes. Yeah. and Because we were looking at our grandson and, uh, you know, quoting Barefoot Boy with Cheek of Tan, John Whitcomb Riley. And and I said, how do you remember that? She said, well, I was made to remember it. I had to memorize. We had to pick a poem and memorize it. Uh, By the way, she will argue that everything she knows, she got in a good high school class. And when she went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, didn't learn much. None of that stuff. None of the books. None of the book stuff. It does seem to me the abandonment of the, of the teacher, the mentor saying, this is good stuff and you need to read it. My, my, my Shakespeare professor at Williams saying, "Read King Lear, and you won't be the same after yeah, what was what someone said what that reading changed after I read the brother's Karamat software. you everything know, changed um and that's been denied them, but it's been denied them by by a professional class of people, teachers, and professors. Fair enough.
2: what a terrible thing they did, yeah to the young in the guise of liberating the young from our authority or our our, our authoritarian influence. I mean, what an awful thing it is to send young people out into the world without the reservoir of of Hamlet's soliloquies or Mozart's Requiem or, you know, the 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 Empire State Building, the great achievements of civilization. He sent them into the world Without realizing you live in the shadow of greatness, and it's for you. It's there for you to absorb, to become part of your sensibility. You know, Abraham Lincoln read the the Old Testament and, and the right. Gospels every day. It's all over his speeches. It was part of the air that he breathed. Yeah. And that's why all those little, little snippets from the Psalms show up in his speeches. We gave the young Nothing. They have they have a big hole in their souls, and no wonder they turn to these uh, these utopian yeah. false gods yeah. of social justice and perfect happiness for everyone, a world free of all kinds of discrimination. Uh, these are these are these are empty wishes because they don't have any genuine. Faiths, the mentors didn't give them anything transcendent or sublime yeah. uh, to understand the world that they've been thrown into and you know you guys you're thirty three years old now. the Facebook thing isn't isn't terribly exciting and so I, I think that we blame that that's why the first sentence of this book is what have we done? Yeah, yeah, now? we've given them crappy movies. And, and aggressive, pounding, idiotic music. Uh, we we've given them uh, bad sports heroes. You know, celebrities behaving atrociously. That scene at the at the at the awards the other night with Chris Rock. My goodness, is this what you want to parade in front of your impressionable fifteen-year-olds? Apparently, a record setting was. Uh...
0: For watching was the Depp Amber Heard trial. Ugh, pretty bad, pretty ugly. I mean,
2: these. these I mean, the mega wealthy, mega famous people uh, behaving in such uh, undignified, uncivilized ways. I mean, we know these things always happened uh, now, but now it's all out there for everyone to see and consume. It's a consumer product for for people, and and you want to say. Uh, well, you put it a few minutes ago, you are affected by what you see and hear, and if you don 't fill your minds with the better things uh, you're, you're you, i 'm not guaranteeing you 're going to be happier, but you will be more solid right you yeah. 'll be more stable you 'll have you 'll have some foundation that will bring a certain contentment that you you it might bring some sadness, but but you will you will have a certain inner strength that that you didn't have before.
0: You're right. And I underlined cognitive empathy. And it proceeds with sympathetic persons and any antipathetic or any sympathetic persons alike. Imagining the inner lives of people you despise or fear, not just the ones you love and admire. It's an unnatural achievement, a habit that must be learned and sharpened and exercised. Um, one of the great passages in your in your book, uh, "The Dumbest Generation" grows up. I want to go to the hard one here because you just used the word, and I think it's central. You use the word "soul." If you don't think they have souls, it really doesn't matter. Uh, I remember I, I kept I've kept a commonplace book for about forty years. Phrases, speeches, lines, whatever. I can't remember who started it, but uh, who I used it first. But I said the most important part of education is the architecture of the soul. Hmm. I think that's right. But if you don't believe they have souls, well, then hell with it. You know, they're just running animals. Why Why bother? But if you think they have souls, then that's what you want
2: to address in your teaching. No, we don't have to prove that they have souls. Their discontent, their current misery is is proof in itself mm-hmm. that they have souls. The, the problem is they have a big hole in their souls. Yeah. Their souls are hungry. They're looking for purpose and meaning. These are age old issues. It's, it's like we're back in the existentialist days of the mid 20th century. What is man 's purpose man's search for meaning? this is a, a universal condition, and they don't they, they undergo the sufferings of life, and they can't pray yeah. they have no transcendent orientation, but they they aspire right they're they're very emotional, but they haven't been given the spiritual tools to translate those emotional pains into meaningful spiritual experience you know i mean i mean the, the the christian model is that suffering is part of the way it is the way to wisdom
0: yeah
2: well people, people who've never suffered I, I i tell this to to tell this to my son uh, people who've never suffered before are the most insufferable people to be around yeah. okay. they're impossible <laughs> so you people need to undergo certain forms of humiliation and disappointment and embarrassment this this is something that is part of the architecture of the soul but we've got to give them the materials to transmute that that suffering those emotional things into uh into experiences memories wisdom that they can that they can carry forward And they need they need mentors to to help them with that. They need to develop. I end the book with the profile of Malcolm X. Right. Right. A horrible human being. He is a thug. He is he is selfish and brutal and profane. And he says this his nickname in in prison at first is Satan. The other other prisoners call him Satan. And he He, he enjoys the notoriety. But he comes across an older man, another black prisoner, who is quiet and thoughtful and speaks and the guy has knowledge and other prisoners sit around and listen to him speak about politics and history and literature, the white guards sit and listen to him, respect him. And he is, he's the mentor that Malcolm X has never had. And Malcolm X changes. He goes, he undergoes a reading problem, a reading problem. Program. He goes through the dictionary. He copies out all the words in the dictionary, starting with aardvark, because he knows I got a two hundred yeah. word working vocabulary <laughs> and I can't speak a sentence without putting the F word in it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah well, we yeah, we're, we're all familiar with that. Yeah,
2: and he he comes out, and I don't take with his hokey religion fine, but he wears a coat and tie. Yeah, he yeah. says I will never curse anymore. He's thoughtful. He's deliberative. He has knowledge he sits then across the table from uh, from from interviewers older white men who ask him tough questions he listens he's thoughtful he wants to know what's going on inside those men's heads he doesn't yeah. say oh you're right ra- that's racist you're racist i'm out of yeah. here yeah. No. yeah he actually engages with them and he genuinely enjoys the interaction. This is what we would say to millennials. Look, there's a better way. There's something so much better out there for yourself than the cancel culture that you're caught up in, the Instagram, the TikTok videos that you watch.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Make there's something so much better for you. You've got, you you've got to ch- as Kierkegaard said you've got to change your life. <laughs> so
0: yeah. No, the, the Malcolm X discussion in the book is, is great, great telling. And there are stories like that. There are a lot of stories like that. Let me ask you this sort of a side question. Which is the most obvious casualty? Poetry, classical music, great art, great literature? I have the feeling some of these things may be gone
2: and just not recoverable. I think that they are becoming, well, let's just say the, the best one can say is their niche Exercises. I mean, even even jazz, you know, classic jazz from the mid 20th century. Okay, Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk. I I would go to we had about 20 years where I think we really had some some high art being created. They were serious musicians.
0: Tell the audience about one of the great jazz artists that you uh, sat next to.
2: Oh, (laughs) by chance. Great story. In, in in the book, I'm a graduate student at UCLA. My mother lives out in, in right. Palm Desert. And I would go out there and I'd do my laundry and in, in my in my crummy old car. And I didn't have any money. And one afternoon, I walked down to the b- big park in downtown Palm Springs, and there's a little jazz festival going on. And my advisor, dissertation advisor, had gotten me into jazz a little bit. I, I was just learning about it. Oh, that's that's kind of neat. It's another world to discover. And there's a little jazz performance going on in the park, and it's open, and people are sitting there in, in lounge chairs. Some of them are playing cards together or having, having little picnics. And there's a little band up on the stage. And, and they're, they're playing. And I, I could walk right up and sit at a picnic table just off the stage and listen. I thought this is pretty cool. And then I look up and I see the trumpet player, his cheeks are blowing way out. I was like, Wait a minute! That's Dizzy Gillespie, and I was I was stunned by this because he's he's in the pantheon, right? This is history here. He he played with Charlie Parker. He was a character in that movie Bird by by Clint Eastwood that yep. was just yep. coming out. He toured for the State Department in in the great days when America was trying to export its best culture uh, and, instead of its 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 mass culture garbage, uh, and I, it's history right here. And I was mesmerized. All the people they didn't really seem to care very much. But yeah. uh, I felt thrilled, and he actually came over and sat down uh, at the picnic table at a break. And I, I, I kind of, you know, he just nodded to me. I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt him. I was scared to death of saying the wrong thing, so I, I just nodded. And he he ate a sandwich uh, during the break, and I felt right there. Okay, a little bit of greatness yeah. has touched my sad graduate yeah. Yeah. student yeah. life. This is this should happen to all young people. Yeah. A little yeah. encounter with history. Yeah. With big important events and personages. It 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 lets them know that that yeah, the, the world is out there. Great things have happened, and that life on earth, life in the United States, your life can participate in in some of that greatness. But of course, greatness is a bad word on on, on campuses and and everywhere. That's why Donald Trump's motto, uh, Make America Great Again, (laughs) uh, uh, inflamed so many people. I I remember uh, uh, Betsy Fox, Genovese, Harvey, Claire, and I went to the dean at Emory University and we proposed a great books program, starting an undergraduate great books program. We thought the the demand was there. Steve Kautz was was another guy who kind of put it together. The dean said, you know, I, I kind of like this idea, but can we get rid of the term great books? Great. Great. Because that implies that maybe what other people are teaching isn't so great. Of course, you know, I, I nodded my head and said, Well, that's sure true. That's right. You know, just this this. Uh, did, did you know the conversation
0: was over at that point? Well, you know, they, maybe you prevailed. Maybe you prevailed.
2: Uh, Steve Couts had gotten some funding for it the next year. He took off and he took the funding and he went to Michigan State. Yeah, yeah. And he did it there because he said, oh my God, what a bunch of losers. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. These, these people are. What is so what is the problem? Young people want greatness. Yeah. They crave." greatness. Greatness. That's why they love sports so much. You know, they they want to see human striving. They want the excellence. When I was at the Arts Endowment, Dana Joya started this program called Poetry Out Loud. Uh I remember recitation contest done on the model of the spelling bee. Yeah. And we actually Uh, came up with a list of great poems. We prescribed which poems goodness. Could memorize, which a lot Excuse of people me. didn't like, but the hell with that. Uh, but the kids who attended these the finals, they were no. so into it. It was yeah. as tense and competitive as as March Madness. They love the
0: idea yeah. of yeah.
2: Yeah. arts, doing great things, coming off with a great performance. Why do their Mentors uh, stick with this bogus, egalitarian kind of lack of ranking of things. I just do not understand it.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, also hitting the same thing over and over again. I remember my, my first son said, How many times do I have to read Chinua Achabi? Things fall apart. Uh, I want to interrupt in your time, Mark, because I had a couple of Dizzy Gillespie experiences and you mentioned sports. I was in Texas. Watching, uh, I don't know, double A baseball game, and I was just wandering around, and I saw a guy throwing in what was not the bullpen. It was just dirt outside the fence, and he looked kind of old. And I said, to "Somebody, who is that guy?" I said some some guy named Don Lars. Holy mackerel!
2: <laughs> he pitched
0: a perfect game in the Our World Series. series.
2: D- uh, this is this is it was legendary. You 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 were in the presence of. A a human legend. Wow. Wow.
0: I couldn't talk. I mean, I like I so I just I just stood there in the Texas twilight hearing, you know, the ball going to the catcher's bit watching Don Larson and thinking about life. And the only question I wanted to ask him was, what the hell are you doing this for, man? (laughs) You know, you you know, you're you're a great man. Go disappear. Don't be standing around single A double See, A baseball but he you know he loved baseball he wanted to keep playing
2: you you have to to have the experience you yeah. have you have to be comfortable saying this person here has done something I will never ever
0: yeah, that's right
2: be able to
0: that's to accomplish. Right. I, I, you're I, saying I, Dizzy Gillespie as he does, does do that and I'm saying
2: Larson still has that curveball how, how the hell does he do that <laughs> that's exactly well, right you know, what you said about uh, Chinua Achebe, how many times do I have to read that? Remember the promise of multiculturalism in the 70s and 80s, that if we open up the canon, we get away from all these dead white males, suddenly we will find all these minority and female authors through history will emerge as the equals of them. And we will have a richer, fuller syllabus, that will be more representative. And it just didn't materialize. Yeah. We actually had a few authors added to the, the canon who were, were female or, or authors of color going, going back a few centuries, but that's it. You yeah. don't hear that much anymore about multiculturalism. Uh, they, they don't push that idea because it, it very clearly, it failed, but of course they, they don't want to admit that
0: well failure i want to i want to we'll just have a few minutes left so i won't take your whole day here this is a wonderful conversation am so glad we're doing it but they know better I, you know one thing i did thank you for mentioning to reclaim a legacy I, I was very proud of that but one thing i did i didn't write i just did a survey you may or may not remember it. when i was chairman of the national down for the humanities and i said what are the f- 10 books every high school graduate should be familiar with by the time they leave high school and I wrote it to very carefully constructed, like 25 moderate or conservative intellectuals, writers, and 25 liberal intellectuals, writers. The amazing thing was the consensus. Interesting. They, they, know. they know. Number one, the Bible. Like it or not, it's the Fountainhead, you know? <laughs> I mean, we're still, there's people are mad as hell. Yep. Still, they're still, they're writing plays against, you know, Christianity, but it's still alive and still living. Shakespeare was number two. Founding documents mm-hmm. of the American Republic was number three. And this was from across the board, consensus.
2: Now, that's pretty close to Lincoln's education, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you're, you're right. And this is what really annoys me about my liberal professor friends. They do know better. What was the great American novel number
0: Oh, uh uh Bible Shakespeare founding documents first uh, three. Moby Dick? No, nope, you mentioned it earlier. Huckleberry H- Dagon Finn, is who it was. Huck Finn. Oh, oh yeah, cool. Huck Finn with all the words in. It. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then he, he you know Huck Finn edged out Homer, which I thought was a mistake, early in the Odyssey, but okay, that's fine. Yeah. Now you could educate someone with those 5 books, right? Yeah. And according to my survey, not scientific, but, you know, pretty interesting. Uh, you would have
2: consensus. Yeah. They know better. They know. They know. A lot of this stuff is crap. Don't they know it? They will never stand up in a faculty meeting on curriculum and say, everyone should read the books. Okay. They, they, it, it's not a question of, of what they think. It's just they, they just don't have any of the courage to, okay. to, yeah. to hold it with Conviction, and so it's it's courage. It's not it's not it's not yeah. that they don't know. And and the thing about the leftists, those guys had courage. I I, I I have seen two leftists in in a group of thirty. Yeah, that's right. The liberals, they will bring the liberals way over to their right. side, right. Uh, far out of proportion to their numbers, because they're willing to you are right, you are right about things. And they're they're willing to to accuse, you know, they- yeah, well, one of the things you get when you get a little perspective and depth
0: is a certain kind of etiquette, too. Right. Right. I can't tell you. And I'm sure you love to hear stories because you mentioned this in your book. we've got to parties and events, family events where one member of the family walks in liberal and says, OK, this can be fine. We're not talking about Donald Trump. We're not doing it. And you know what? Most people were intimidated by it and didn't talk about it. That's the courage of those of your two leftists, right? Yeah. And they do that. And I've been at weddings where, you know, uh, all my conservative friends, they, they leave politics out of a wedding. But damn if the liberals do, because everything is political. Everything is political, right? They're listening to Maxine Waters disrupt, you know,
2: confront. Yeah. Here's the way it works. I mean, I've, I've had this happen with with me before uh, the, the liberals in academia will have spent time and again uh, efforts to uh, uh, get rid of great books, get rid of Western civilization, get rid of the great American novel and be more diverse and multicultural. And they will do this over and over and do a lot of damage the moment. A conservative or a traditionalist of some kind rise up and says, "No, no, we shouldn't do this. We're the ones starting culture wars right. We're The ones being aggressive right right. <laughs> My goodness, you people have really played the game but see, I think liberals are in a tough spot now because uh, they they know leftists are doing illiberal things, but they, they simply cannot bring themselves to rise yeah. up whether out of courage or courage whether they courage. just the, the idea of actually moving over to the right is so appalling to them that they have to undergo all kinds of you know, mental somersaults in order to avoid speaking up in order to yeah. avoid saying stop this i think liberals are in crisis right now yeah yeah and y- you see i mean the symptoms of of the crisis one can point to uh, in the fact that, you know, your political party is headed now by people who one can barely listen to speak for for more than two minutes. You yeah. uh, I mean, our, our president, our vice president, the, the Speaker of the House and, 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 and Hoyer, you can't even listen to these people talk. You know, you could listen to Bill Clinton talk yeah, 25 sure. years ago. I mean, he he was he was an adversary, but you, you actually could listen to him and formulate response. You can't even do this to the Democratic leadership. Now, one cannot take anything they say seriously. I, I mean, I, I find that the liberal leadership in, in this country now is... Pathological. But don't you know that
0: it's millennials who are writing the speeches and directing the course? It's
2: these 30, 30 year old women. Yeah. Isn't it? It is. I think it, it is. I think that if you, if you go to the publishing industry, for instance, I'm amazed at how yeah. it's dominated by, yeah. by women in early middle age. Yeah. Uh, and this is a function of the fact that uh, the pipeline has been highly feminized. College campuses are, are very feminized places and human resources is, is dominated yeah. by women. The medical yeah. industry is actually, yeah. is actually mostly women uh, at this point. And so I, I think that millennial males learn very early on to w- watch their alpha side. You just you just watch it, uh, mm-hmm. or or you're or you're going to be in trouble. Well,
0: we could talk about what this has done, to, you know, relations between the sexes. And I say to my wife, it was always hard to figure out what to do, you know, boys and girls. Sure. Now, now it's, I mean, what are the, you know, what are the rules, you know, what, you know, what the hell, you know, what can I say, what can I do, what am I allowed? It's a mess. Let, let me ask you this. I wanted to talk to you about Stanford, but I'm going to pass. Western mm-hmm. Civ. Because you hurt my feelings, mm-hmm. I wasn't in their discussion, Stanford. I think I was a fairly important player. You the, you, you you didn't mention my name, not in that discussion.
2: Wait, after <laughs>
0: in
2: '89,
0: you you got very involved. Yeah, I went there on campus, and I wanted to debate President Kennedy, the president of the university. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't there. And the professors did not. I defended Western Civ. You know, I said, Jesse Jackson said, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. I started by saying, I've heard that. It's catchy, but it's not compelling Mm. as an argument. And then I made an argument for Western Civ. And I said, as civilizations go, it's pretty good. You know, compared to what? Compared to what? Yeah. And anyway, I made the case. Well, professors didn't get up. They pushed students up to, you know, debate me. But that was fine. anyway, the next day I flew back to Washington. I was searching for the president and I found him and we got on the McNeil Lehrer show. Yeah. And I got to, I got to debate it there, but, but my feeling, my feelings don't matter. It was the debate oh, that mattered.
2: No, I, you know, I wrote a piece about Stanford in in inside higher ed uh, a few weeks ago. And actually four people wrote long essays in in response. I think I mentioned you in that, but you know, if I didn't, I owe you one on that because I, 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 I still write about oh. it. I owe you one. I'm going to write about you going to Stanford. Right, as good. The anti-Jackson. Yeah,
0: yeah. And you know what he reminded me of? And I'd totally forgotten it. This is a problem of old age. Thank you, by the way. Uh, I forgot the editor of the paper, Stanford, was on my side. Peter Thiel, for God's sakes.
2: Thiel was the editor then? Yes, yes. Because he wrote he... about yes. it a years later.
0: He did, but he was the editor of the student paper and said this is good and I just wish I'd gotten a few stock tips from him, you know. But <laughs> yeah, indeed. But but he was an intern for me, for God's sakes. I didn't know that either. Whoa, the whoa, whoa, Department, whoa. The Department in- of Education. Yeah, yeah.
2: Can I ask what year that was?
0: I don't remember. He was just a kid, two or three years out of Stanford, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I you know, I was still secretary. But um yeah, that was that was as I'll tell you, want a sports story, I'll tell you a story. So I go to the quarterback dinner in, in D.C., and they and they have a lot of football players. I'm so a huge football fan. And they have the Quarterback of Government Award. And I got the Quarterback of Government Award, which I actually really like because I was hanging around with Jock for two or three hours. Hmm. You heard me mention Don Larson. And I saw John Elway, a quarterback, you know, famous and Super Bowl winner. He's Stanford graduate, and I remember I went up to him. He's there with his wife. I said, "John, how do you do? I'm a great." Master. I said, "Did you take the course in Western Sith? And it's very funny. This is really comes to nothing, but he turned to his wife Janet and said, "Did I take Western Sith? <laughs> and she said, "Yeah, you got a B. He Said, "Yeah, I, got, I did. I got a be. I said, "Favorite book or anything?" Ah, not really. Okay. Anyway, that was that's the, that's neither here nor there. But you know, it's funny. You know the way you're built. There I am at the quarterback dinner with all these guys I watch, and I had to bring up Western Civ to John Elwood.
2: The thing about the 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 Stanford case in that Western cultures class in my Western Civ earlier was most of the kids loved it. It was a minority of the students right. complained about that right. course. The right. course was very popular. It's the same thing at Columbia today. Columbia's core would have been right. fun. Right. A long time ago, if it weren't for the alumni. Now, I want to
0: interrupt you because in the book, yeah. um, But I mean, alumni at Stanford interviewed about most influential, still listed that course, Western Civ, as the most influential. But you talk in the book about an effort to bring it back, and that failed miserably, right? There was a poll of alums.
2: Uh, There were a group of conservative students about five years ago, six years ago now who tried to reintroduce Western Civ and the, the nastiness, the vilification yeah. that the other students hit them with and the faculty were just silent, racist, homophobic. I mean, all the terms that we've become so accustomed to. But the extraordinary thing was how emotional yeah. it all was there on the campus. And you had this core of four or five Conservative students who were editing the conservative paper, who somehow that they had the gumption that I didn't have when I was that age, they laughed, they made fun of of all the people accusing them and tearing up and uh, talking uh, about, you know, the administration needs to punish these students. Uh, but it was it was a nasty little episode that all the liberals on the campus should have risen up and said, knock this off. You let these guys make their uh, state their peace. But they didn't, of course. Uh, they, they, remember, the most secure labor group in the country is also the most timid and fearful. What do we do,
0: Mark, about the future? Um, those efforts will come to nothing. Every few years or so, some very rich conservative dies and somebody calls me up and says, would you be interested in becoming... President of a university that does it right, you know, and these efforts, and there's one now you probably heard of, maybe they've talked to you. Is it the University of Austin? Yeah, yeah, you know what, I'm, but do you know what I'm talking about?
2: Sure, sure. I was actually in an event with uh, yeah. the president uh, recently, right? Look, uh, it's, it's a very good thing, the University of Austin. It's not really a conservative, it's more liberal education across the board, but I will be. I will be happy when we see 20 of these created. Uh, but that's what
0: conservatives want. They don't want a conservative institution.
2: They want a liberal arts institution. in the
0: meaning of the term, right? The true meaning of the term. They're,
2: they're, they're actually open, open-minded yeah, they're generous. Uh, liberal, right. liberal education. Uh, here's where mm-hmm. I would see uh, signs for optimism. I'm naturally pessimistic, but signs of optimism are things such as the number of parents in the last couple of years who pulled their kids out of public schools and are homeschooling them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of kids who are enrolling in classical schools, classical education schools. Mm-hmm. For instance, the Great Hearts Charter yes. Network, Arizona and Texas, yeah. has a wait list of fifteen thousand kids. Yeah. And a lot of those parents who went to those school board meetings, uh, angry about race theory and sex in elementary school, those were liberal parents. They weren't yeah, conservatives. Right. And so I think parents, the parent issue is is very important. Classical education enrollments are jumping up. And I, I think that this may be uh, a sign of 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 the future. Again, we always wonder if the if the pendulum is 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 going to just swing back a little bit or not. Yeah. But, you know, it may be, we'll see what happens in November. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, election. I, yeah. I mean, if we, if we do see more of these district attorneys going down, uh, that, yeah. but but again, I'll believe it when I see a lot of it. I know. I not know. Not just a scat. Let's not get too congratulatory. Oh, no, I know. A few I victories, know. right? We don't want to be, uh, like like so many uh, people on the right, just slowing down the left. We want to reverse. And that means some of them have to be punished. I mean, some of them have to be voted out and voted down. Uh, we want to see some college administrators actually be punished for some of the things they've done, yeah. we just stop them from doing what they're doing. We need some recriminations or they're just going to keep doing it. Yeah. People
0: ask me, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I say, theoretically, I'm a pessimist. I'm with Isaiah. It's all wind and ashes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everything we do in the end comes to naught. But operationally, I am an optimist. Remember, Irving Kristol used to say, be like those Soviet generals of old who, when they were shaving, were saying, what can we do today (laughs) to to hurt them, you know, to advance the cause? Yeah, I'm... Uh, so, you know, go to work. I don't know how it turns out in the end. None of us knows. But, um, well, but my, I do know this. I do know this. And, and your book is just such great fodder here. Everybody has to read this. Is is that bodies need bread and water and nur- souls need nurture. They need it. And they're going to get it somewhere. And a lot of it they're getting is, you know, not so good.
2: My attitude is, even if we're losing, y- you keep fighting. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Whether whether you're winning, winning or losing, you have to fight. I mean, I'll go down fighting. Yeah, sure. And, and keep keep going. I mean, what happened to Joshua Katz at Princeton? Yeah. Last week. Let's not let up. Let, let's I've written two pieces about this. Yeah, good. About Princeton. And, uh, you, yeah. you know, you know, one of the things about the left is they lose a year later, they come back with the same thing. They often win, not because they have better ideas, but just because they have more stamina. Well, let's I don't care if I lose. I'm I mean, I do care if I lose, but I'm not going to change. I mean, operationally, I, th- I like the way you put it. Operationally, you, you have to be active. You got to go for it. And uh, let's 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 see who has the most stamina.
0: My boys both went to Princeton. Um, white males, they got there because they're they will tell you because they're jocks, big-time jocks, across in football. They're not sure they could get in today even with their athletic abilities, though. Princeton really likes that. But on the wall there, the National Inn, they have pictures of distinguished graduates. And there's my old friend Don Rumsfeld
1: mm-hmm.
0: next to Michelle Obama. Yeah. Whose thesis we can't get a hold of, but apparently... It's about all the racism she encountered at Princeton. Yeah. Give me a break. You know, one thing when we dropped our second son off, I said, the only problem here is this place ain't the real world. I mean, this is one damn beautiful place. But, you know, I think it would be better if they went to Trenton and, you know, and spend a little time in Trenton, which is more like more of the real world is like Trenton than Princeton. But it's okay. They've turned. They've turned out okay because I I hammer them. (laughs) I hammer them. Um, Uh, Bill Bradley's up on the wall too. There in the yes, he is. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yes, he is. Anyway, um, so go to work. Right. For people listening, what should they do? Should they send their kids to college? Should they write letters to the editor if they care about this? These millennials and what and what they've done and what they're doing. uh, Is it as
2: bad? By the way. Quick question with the generation coming up behind the millennials. You know, I thought Gen Z would be uh, my my revenge on the millennials, because if you're 19 years old, you don't want to hear some 30 year old scold telling you naughty, naughty. You shouldn't have told that joke. But my concern is that uh, cancel culture, political correctness has attached so much surveillance to the pipeline Into the elite, that we're going to get a lot of Gen Zers who do that mischievous irreverence aimed at political correctness. Yeah, their little jokes and their you know affirmative action bake sales, things like that. Uh, But those who want to get into the good graduate schools, who want the good internships, who want to become top lawyers, they're going to keep their heads down. They're going to conform and keep quiet. And that we are producing an elite now. That doesn't have the kind of independence of mind and courageousness of spirit to, to fight against. And so I, I look at all, almost in Marxist terms, you know, we need the proletarian to, to get this revolutionary consciousness and, and realize that there's a class war being waged uh, against you. I don't think class warfare is a universal condition. But I, I think that in a way, the liberals and leftists who said everything is political, they've made it this way now.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and so we, we have to start thinking in, in, in warfare terms uh, about things. Parents, send your kids to college. Well, be careful. Yeah. Be vigilant. Send your kids to college. And, and, and it may be that, I mean, Williams College, 2,000 kids there, small faculty. It's it's a hot house. That's hard to yeah take way through without without running up uh, uh, against no the garbage. You go to a big school like you know University of Virginia. If you're careful, you can find the good classes and, and some good professors. Every case is different. I, I encourage parents to write to me. I, I advise a lot of them on on how to how to guide their kids through the education. System, uh, but you know my son is a he. He plays cello pretty well. If he becomes a plumber and a good cellist in in his spare time, I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah. He'll make more money than I did. I know. I, I, <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, but let, let me pick up on that. So I'm
0: curious your view. Michigan, Texas University, of Texas, Ohio State, uh, University of Arizona can you go to those places and with good guidance get yourself an education i think you can right
2: i think i think you can it it might uh, again require a lot of selectivity and care you you still can i mean if you're going to take uh a courses in say if you're going to study if you're going to study french at the university of arizona you got to learn the french it's hard to politicize you know, the the conjugation of verbs. But but I, I think that there are certain nuts and bolts things that you can get at the at the bigger schools. And then when you advance farther, you can find those those professors. In the old days, you know, a Marxist on the faculty, a Marxist actually demanded that you do your darn homework. You, yeah. You've got to learn your history and your, your philosophy and your politics and your economics. They, they, they meant it. They were people of the book in, in a way. Mm-hmm. They were all Puritans mm-hmm. about doing your homework. You got to adopt the Marxist framework, but know your stuff. The problem was we've we got in the humanities now too many pseudo Marxists, fake Trotskyites. I, I think if you're careful, it can still be done. Yes.
0: Okay. Yeah, I don't. I, I I don't know what to say when people say should you know send them to college or not. I you know, find out more about the kid and what they're thinking. But a lot for a lot more students than before, I'm saying no. Don't don't do
2: that. Don't Certainly grad school in the humanities, forget it. Yeah. I mean, really go shame. for two years, get your master's, get paid to read books, but a career? <sighs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Mark Byron. Thank you very
0: much. Um, and uh, there's so much in here. I look at all the little sticky things. I put quotes and wish we didn't have time for more of them. But you get a sense of this, folks. I hope you do. And hope you get this book. The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. Thanks, Mark Bowerline. It's a great contribution. Thank you, and, Dr. Uh, you pre- <laughs> Dr. Bennett. We appreciate Dr. Bennett. We No, you're not making up for that. You're not making up for that Stanford thing with that Dr. Bennett thing. No, sorry. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see. We'll all see. right. I <laughs> no, don't worry about it. But um, I think your book has gone further in helping me answer the question I've been asking for 30 years. I know it makes a difference to read this good stuff and just how does it do it? And I think your book goes as far as any careful analysis, both from quoting the psychologists, the cognitive experts um, and, and just, you know, your own experience and the experience of your students and your friends. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you. That does it for today's show. Catch up on previous episodes of the show. Go to the Bill You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.